Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Back to Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me is Nicole and Colleen. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back again this month. No problem. We're glad to have you here. I'm good. How are you, Eileen? I'm doing well. That's great. We have a couple of reviewers to thank. Uh, thank you to Momo J88, Wolves Mom, Susie Girl, and Laura Vidal for your feedback. Reviews help people find the podcast and help us grow. So thanks again. If you're liking the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or whatever app you listen to podcasts on. We also have a couple of patrons to thank. Thank you to Adrian and Amanda for your support of the show. We'll be shipping your rewards out soon. If you're interested in supporting the show or scoring some cool merchandise, head over to patreon.com slash misconduct podcast to check it out. So now on to tonight's case. Whenever I mention that I guest host on a true crime podcast, people always suggest cases that they know or have been affected by, the ones that have stayed with them over the years. We all have those cases, right? Since I live so close to Spotsylvania County in Virginia, the kidnappings and murders of Sophia Silva and the Lisk sisters have been brought to my attention by so many people in this area. My dad, though, who has been a loyal listener of misconduct from the start, was the first to suggest this case to me. He said that besides it happening in his hometown, having a daughter so close to the girl's ages made it difficult to read about this case in the local newspaper. My friend and coworker Dave insisted that we cover this case as well. He said that the murders gripped this entire community, a community that was not used to having violent crime occur in their neighborhoods. My sister-in-law, who was raised in Spotsylvania County, told me that before the girls went missing, kids played freely in the streets, walked to the stores and to the friends' houses, went hiking in the neighborhood woods for hours without hesitation. However, after Sophia Silva went missing, parents no longer felt safe letting their children play in their front yards. They waited at the bus stop for their kids to come home from school, even if they could see the stop from their living room windows. Once I committed to researching what happened to Sophia Silva and the Lisk sisters, I started to ask people who were in Spotsylvania during the mid-90s what they remembered. Everyone I spoke to seemed to have been impacted by this case in one way or another. 
and I got the feeling that the crimes committed against these girls forever changed Spotsylvania County. When Sophia Silva and the Lisk sisters were kidnapped, the perception of the place they called home was completely altered. Still, I was a little hesitant about doing an episode on this case. I've said from the beginning that I didn't want to cover murders that involve children. Besides that, this case is very close to home for me, even if I wasn't living in Virginia during the mid-90s. I knew it would be unnerving to read about the schools the girls went to, the parks they lived by and played in, the location of where their bodies were found. All of those places are familiar to me. It would be difficult to stay detached from this case. Yet the more I read about what happened to these girls, the more I realized that their story should be shared. Eileen, Colleen, and I spent a lot of time delving into dark, disturbing, and horrible crimes. What happened to these young girls are beyond terrible. But how their kidnapper or murderer was finally revealed may be one of the bravest things I've ever heard. After some consideration, I decided to put my own feelings aside to tell their story. Since this case involves young girls between the ages of 12 and 16, we at Misconduct have decided to omit some of the details that occurred after they were taken in respect to the victims and their families. The details that are shared are imperative to how the case was finally solved. September 9, 1996 was like any other ordinary Monday in Spotsylvania, Virginia. Sophia Silva was 16 years old, and she exited her bus at the end of the school day. She walked the short distance to her house, said hello to her older sister, and like most typical high schoolers, called a friend for a chat before lying down for a quick nap. Around 4.30, Sophia was ready to tackle her homework. She grabbed a can of grape soda and a snack for reinforcement before heading to the front porch to study. Her older sister didn't think twice about Sophia being outside alone. Sophia wasn't a young child, and she often sat on the porch to do her homework. And they lived in a safe residential neighborhood close to a park that has a popular community pool. But after some time, her sister did begin to wonder why Sophia was so quiet. When she went to check on Sophia, she found the 16-year-old gone. Her backpack and notebook were open, and the can of soda was half-finished. Her sister heard or saw nothing unusual, but knew Sophia always told her family when she was leaving the house. However, it was possible that Sophia decided to go to a friend's house. Later that evening, when Sophia's mother, Phyllis, returned home from work, she became concerned to find that Sophia still wasn't home. Mrs. Silva called every one of Sophia's friends she could think of. Each gave the same response. They had not seen or heard from Sophia since the end of the school day. Mrs. Silva wasted no time calling the police. When the police arrived at the Silvas, they learned that Sophia wasn't having any issues at school. She didn't have a boyfriend. She was well-liked by her circle of friends, and she was close to her family. Her parents insisted that Sophia had no history of running away. Everyone who knew her insisted she was a typical sophomore in high school who liked to hang out with her friends, gossip on the phone, go to the high school football games, and who was known for adding purple accessories to all of her outfits. The police were perplexed by Sophia's sudden disappearance. They surveyed the scene, and there was no sign of a struggle. The sun had been shining. Cars passed by the Silva's house frequently during that time of the afternoon, and Sophia's older sister was only a few feet away. It was as if the 16-year-old had simply vanished. Spotsylvania County Police Department knew they had to act, yet tried to reason that many teenagers run away without any warning. That evening, the police called Sophia's friends but got the same response as Mrs. Silva. No one had seen or heard from the missing girl. 
Next, they went door to door in the Silva's neighborhood. Children had been playing in their yards when Sophia went missing, but no one had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. The police were stumped. How could a person disappear without any trace? Could it have been possible for Sophia to have left with somebody she knew? Her family adamantly denied the suggestion. The next day, a massive search was organized for Sophia, and they weren't short on volunteers. The Silvas were well-liked within their community, and even those who did not personally know Sophia or her family volunteered for the search. Spotsylvania County, a rural area located about 60 miles south of D.C., is a small, close-knit area, and Sophia's disappearance was troubling for anybody who lived there, and the residents wanted to help bring her home. Woods were searched, ponds were drained, helicopters surveyed the surrounding areas by air, and cadaver dogs were utilized, but Sophia was nowhere to be found. As the weeks went by, the police became desperate for leads, but none were forthcoming. Sightings of Sophia from across the country began to be reported. After careful follow-ups, none of these sightings ever ended up being Sophia. On October 14th, five weeks after Sophia went missing, police received a phone call from a neighboring county. Workers who had been clearing out the stream found the body of a young female, She had been wrapped in a blue heavy moving blanket, tied together with rope, and her toenails were painted purple. When the police arrived, they knew they had found Sophia. While the exact cause of death could never be determined, upon examination, it was discovered that although Sophia was found wearing her clothing, she had been redressed post-mortem. She had been sexually assaulted, her pubic hair had been shaved, and whoever took her from her front porch had not kept her long. Her body had been in the water between four to five weeks. Police were determined to find who is responsible for killing Sophia. They theorized that Sophia must have known her murderer since no one heard any screaming or there's no signs of a struggle. Investigators quickly ruled out Sophia's family and close friends. Once again, they went door to door questioning the neighbors about the day Sophia went missing. Again, the neighbors maintained they heard or saw nothing out of the ordinary that day. But as investigators proceeded with their questioning, one name was frequently mentioned, Carl Rausch. Rausch lived several houses from the Silvas. He had the reputation of leering at young children and teenage girls while driving down the street of the neighborhood. Rausch had a history of trespassing, various traffic violations, indecent exposure, and had been arrested for visiting a place of, quote, ill repute. Police soon discovered that there were witnesses who had seen Sophia talking to Rausch only four days before she went missing. Rausch denied ever seeing or speaking with Sophia when asked by the police. This didn't ring true to the investigators. For one, witnesses insisted they had seen Rausch talking with Sophia. And even if they didn't have those witnesses saying that, Rausch living so close to the Silvas, he surely had had to have seen the teenager at some point. Police asked Rausch to take a polygraph test in order to clear his name. He refused. This was all the investigators needed for a warrant to search Rausch's truck and home. They found blue fibers, hair, and purple flakes in Rausch's truck. Several thick moving blankets were found in his home. Investigators were sure they had found the man responsible for Sophia's assault and murder. They sent the collected evidence to Richmond where it was analyzed. Rausch's landlord told the police that his behavior suddenly changed after Sophia went missing. Rausch was a beer drinker, but once the news of the missing local girl hit, he switched to Jack Daniels. He reported that after police searched his home and truck, Rausch packed up and moved to Florida without any notice, leaving some of his personal belongings behind even. In January of 1997, investigators received confirmation that the fibers found in Rausch's truck matched the ones on Sophia's body. 
Roush, who was, had been living in Florida, received a phone call saying that Spotsylvania County police wanted to question him. So to his credit, Roush returned immediately to Virginia and was questioned by police. Despite having forensic evidence connecting Roush to Sophia's abduction and murder, investigators wanted to play it safe. This was mainly because the medical examiner stated that the DNA evidence found in Sophia's vagina did not match Roush. Police dismissed this contradiction. They speculated that Sophia maybe had consensual sex a short time before she went missing. Her family and friends completely denied this as Sophia didn't have any boyfriends. Although rare, the police wondered if maybe Roush could have had an accomplice to this abduction. To compromise, investigators arrested Roush with an old shoplifting charge instead of the murder charge while they, you know, collected more proof that he was Sophia's killer. Even with the nagging little detail of the mismatching DNA, the fibers found on Sophia's body matched the ones in Roush's truck. Plus, people agreed that the purple flakes had to have been from Sophia's fingernail polish. There were too many circumstances linking him to the crime to ignore, and most were satisfied to have Roush behind bars for Sophia's murder. Life in Spotsylvania went on. Residents of the county knew that their home was changed forever, but the community was ready to heal after such a terrible tragedy. With Sophia's killer behind bars, people believed that their children were safe again. Until May 1st, 1997, seven months after the disappearance of Sophia Silva, Rong Lisk returned home to find his daughters missing. Kristen, age 15, and Katie, age 12, were seen getting off their separate school buses and walking towards their home. A neighbor heard the girls talking and laughing from her yard as the girls let themselves in to their house. Around 3 p.m., Mr. Lisk called home from his photography studio, which he did every afternoon to make sure his girls arrived home safely. But Kristen and Katie didn't pick up. He figured they were out back or was still walking home from the bus stop. At 3.15, he called again, but there was no answer. At 3.30, when the girls still didn't answer the phone, Mr. Lisk closed up his shop to check on Kristen and Katie. At first glance, Mr. Lisk didn't notice anything out of the ordinary in his house. He found two glasses with the remnants of chocolate melt in the sink. He had asked his daughters to start filling the above-ground pool with water from a hose, and when he went out back, he found the water still flowing into the pool. Katie had changed out of her school clothes, and Kristen's books were outside, but the List sisters were nowhere to be found. Mr. Lisk immediately called the police, and once again, a community was horrified to learn that two more girls had gone missing. Mr. Lisk had a security system installed after Sophia disappeared, and Kristen and Katie had strict instructions not to open the door for anyone, not even a postman. Yet, the Lisk family lived in a more rural part of Spotsylvania, roughly three miles away from the Silvas. It would have been easy enough for someone to have grabbed the girls from their driveway without being seen. The authorities quickly ruled out Kristen and Katie's parents and close family and friends. They followed the same protocol they followed when Sophia disappeared. They went door to door, asking questions, hoping for leads. They searched the surrounding woods and bodies of water. The search yielded little results. It appeared as if Kristen and Katie had simply vanished. On May 6, just five days after the Lisk sisters went missing, 
two highway workers decided to stop for lunch on a bridge overlooking the South Anna River, nearly 40 miles away from the Lisk home. As they ate, one of the men noticed two mannequins bound in a blanket floating in the water below. They watched the dolls hang lifeless in the water until they remembered the two girls who were missing in Spotsylvania. Upon closer inspection, they knew they had to call the police. The bodies of Kristen and Katie Lisk were wrapped in heavy moving blankets tied together with rope. Both girls had been dressed, but their underwear and tennis shoes were missing. Kristen's pubic hair had been shaved. Investigators canvassed the area looking for any additional clues that might lead them to the killer. They found little evidence beyond what was taken from the two girls' bodies, and that evidence made them acknowledge the similarities between Sophia and the Lisk sisters. Authorities had no choice but to admit that the two crimes were eerily alike. All three girls lived in Spotsylvania County. Their bodies had been found in water, wrapped in heavy moving blankets. They had been sexually assaulted, and Sophia and Kristen's pubic area had been shaved. But how could the murders be connected when Carl Rausch was sitting in jail, when Kristen and Katie went missing? The FBI and local investigators had no choice but to cross-examine the evidence between Sophia and the Lisk sisters. It was discovered that the fibers from all three bodies came from the same location. All three girls had been held in the same place. Authorities knew that somewhere a mistake had been made. They had the FBI run the evidence that linked Sophia Silva to Carl Rausch. The community was shocked once again when it was discovered that the fibers that had once connected Rausch to the crime were no longer a match. The state forensic examiner who had made the mistake was quickly fired, and the Spotsylvania County Police had to admit to the community of falsely accusing a man of murder. The charges against Carl Rausch were dropped. People were simply stunned by the turn of events. Investigators had to start back at the beginning with Sophia Silva. It was undeniable that all three girls were killed by the same person, which meant that Spotsylvania County had a serial killer among them. The day the news broke to the public, an award for $150,000 was posted for anyone who could provide information about the murders. I'm glad they didn't, the state didn't just go through with prosecuting Roush like some, you know, have done in the past, refusing to admit their mistake. And I feel so bad for Sylvia Silva's family. You know, they thought they could put the tragedy of their daughter's murder behind them just to have the police have to start the investigation all over again. It's just, it's awful. Yeah. After that, the case went cold. This was not implying that the authorities forgot about the Silva and Lisk girls. In fact, FBI agents and local investigators formed a Silva-Lisk task force. This special task force met once a week to discuss any new leads and follow up on old ones. A full profile of the suspect was done. The task force concluded that the perpetrator was most likely a white male between the ages of 30 to 45 who had some job movement freedom since all three of the girls were taken during business hours. Investigators also surmised that the killer worked in construction since the girls had debris on their body that was consistent with a construction site. They also knew that the killer knew the area well and could have been a local. With DNA evidence and a strong profile of the murderer, a couple hundred suspects were interviewed but were all cleared either through forensic evidence or because they had ironclad alibis. 
As the years rolled by without any new leads, the posters of Sophia and the Lisk sisters that hung in the windows of local shops began to fade with age. The residents of Spotsylvania never forgot the murdered girls, but hope of finding the killer seemed like an impossible dream. On June 24, 2002, in Lexington, South Carolina, 15-year-old Kara Robinson was at a friend's house. The two teenagers were planning on seeing a movie. While her friend took a quick shower, Kara decided to water the flowers in the front yard that were bearing the brunt of the summer heat. Kara admired the Trans Am as it drove down the street, and when its driver parked the car in front of the house, no alarm bells went off. The man looked like the average Joe, white, medium build, in his mid to late 30s. He was wearing a baseball hat and was casually dressed, but nicely. When he approached Kara with some magazines he was selling, she noted that he first asked if her parents were home and that he maintained a respectable distance away from her. That was until he learned that Kara was at a friend's house and that there were no grown-ups around. He then slipped closer to her before pressing a small gun to the base of her back, asking her to walk towards the car. Once he had Kara close enough to the car, he forced her into a plastic storage container and drove off. When Kara's friend went looking for her, she knew something was wrong. Kara wouldn't have left without telling her or without turning the hose off. The friend immediately called her mother, and they notified Kara's mother. When the police arrived, they tried to suggest that Kara had gone off voluntarily, that maybe a boyfriend stopped by to pick her up, and you know, since there was no sign of a struggle, that Kara must have known whoever she went off with. But her mother and friends say that was impossible. Police said that maybe Kara didn't know the person, but still freely went into the car with him. And again, her mother and friend explained to the police that Kara wouldn't go off with somebody that she didn't know. Later that evening, a missing persons case was filed and a search was underway. A neighbor told police that they saw Kara talking to a man outside the house, and they believed that they saw Kara get into the car willingly. Kara's mother, however, didn't believe this. She maintained that her daughter was not a runaway, and as the day dwindled with no sign of Kara, everyone started to fear that she might have been met with foul play. But Kara was still alive. Kara didn't fight the man as he closed the lid. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
over her head. She knew he could easily overpower her. She followed the man's instructions. She told herself to stay calm. Kara instantly knew there was only one reason why men kidnap girls her age. She braced herself for the sexual assault that she knew was to follow. She told herself to stay calm, do as a man said, and to notice everything. The man drove for five to ten minutes before stopping. She felt him lift the plastic container she was in and drag it across the asphalt. He opened the container, forced her out, tied and gagged her. He told her not to fight or scream. He showed her the gun to remind her that he was serious with his demands before shoving her back into the plastic container. The next time Kara would be let out of the box, she'd find herself in the man's apartment. She again prepared herself for the assault, but to her surprise, the man took out a notebook and began interviewing her. He asked her how old she was, where she lives, if she had a boyfriend, if she was a virgin, if she'd ever took drugs. The man recorded her answers in this notebook. As the man wrote, Kara began collecting her own information about him. She carefully examined his apartment, noting that there were female touches and figured a woman probably lived with him. While Kara memorized these details, she made sure to stay calm and do everything her kidnapper ordered her to do. When the man was finished with his interview, he repeatedly raped Kara throughout the afternoon into the evening. Once he finished, he tied Kara to his bed with blue fuzzy handcuffs and bound one of her legs to the end of the bed and fell asleep next to her. Kara was hurt. She was exhausted both physically and mentally and emotionally, but she knew she had to seize this moment. As she laid next to this man, her composure did begin to slip. She had a hard time breathing and a panic set in. She allowed herself to cry before falling asleep herself. When she woke, the early morning sun was streaming through the curtains and the man who had abducted her snored softly next to her. Kara knew it was now or never. Incredibly, she worked her hands out of the handcuffs. She moved slowly, careful not to disturb the sleeping man, as she untied her foot. The man turned in his sleep, but he was still breathing heavy and snoring softly. So once free, out of the bed, Kara found her shorts and one of the man's t-shirts. Quietly, she tiptoed out of the bedroom. Kara wasn't free yet, though. As she made her way to the front door, panic set in when she saw it was blocked with boxes and other ordinary household items. Kara paused for a moment to listen for the man's heavy breathing. She knew that she would make noise when moving the boxes out of the way. She also knew that this would be the only moment she'd have to escape. Kara began moving the items away from the door, bracing herself for an attack from her captor once she woke him up and found out she was gone. Only the man didn't wake up. So with the boxes out of the way, Kara opened up the door and she ran. She ran through the apartment hall, she ran to the parking lot, and she kept running until she reached the street where she flung herself in front of the first passing car she saw. The car had two men in it. They stopped immediately, stunned to see a hysterical teenager screaming that she had been taken and raped. She showed them the handcuffs and the rope that were still on her wrist and leg. Without a chance of them telling her no, Kara crawled into the back seat and said, there, she shouted, pointing at the apartment complex. I came from there. Remember that for me. The men drove straight to the police station. The police interviewed Kara. They believed her from the start. It's hard to deny her story with she's still in handcuffs and has a rope tied to her ankle. Kara told them everything about the 18-hour ordeal. Kara's memory, considering what she had just experienced, was impeccable. Investigators knew they had to act quickly. They asked Kara if she was willing to take them to her captor's apartment. She agreed. Kara took them to the apartment building, but was unable to remember the exact unit. That didn't matter, since she knew exactly what car he drove. Police quickly were able to link the Trans Am to the right apartment unit belonging to the man named Richard Mark Ivonitz. Of course, Ivonitz had already fled. 
Police wasted no time in putting out an all-points bulletin on Ivanitz. They also began contacting his family members. They learned that his mother and wife were vacationing at Disney World for the week. Ivanitz had told them that he was unable to go because he had to work. This was a lie. Ivanitz had taken a week off, only he had a different kind of holiday planned than going to Disney with his wife and mother. When contacted by the police, the Ivanitz women boarded a plane to return to South Carolina. They both maintained Ivanitz's innocence. Police began contacting anyone close to Ivanitz. He had two younger sisters who both admitted that their brother had called them while on the run. One of the sisters wasn't forthcoming with the police. The other was more willing to talk. After two days of searching for Ivanitz, she told them that she was supposed to be meeting her brother the next day at a pancake house in Jacksonville, Florida. That morning and after two days on the lam, as Ivanitz approached the restaurant, he noticed police cars in the parking lot and on the streets surrounding the building. It wasn't difficult for him to put the pieces together. Ivanitz knew that the police were waiting for him, but he wasn't about to give up just yet. Ivanitz spun his car into ongoing traffic and raced down the street doing 120 miles per hour. This was the start of a high-speed chase that went on for miles, and he managed to stay ahead of police until they put down spike strips to puncture his tires on the freeway. This still didn't stop him, though, and the chase went on for another several miles. As the Trans Am wheels began to fall apart, Ivanitz kept on driving until he made a mistake. He tried to turn around by crossing over the freeway's median. This busted his tires for good, forcing him to stop the car. The police were finally able to surround him. Police were ready to move in to arrest the man who had kidnapped and raped Kara Robinson. At first, it appeared that Ivanitz was going to cooperate, but as police moved closer, he pulled out his gun, the same one used to abduct Kara. He placed it in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Ivanitz died instantly. Even with Richard Ivanitz dead, an investigation was still conducted. In his apartment, police were shocked to find a locked trunk that held notebooks detailing the comings and goings of young girls he had stalked. He would watch these young girls for weeks before deciding if they were his perfect victim. He watched as he got off their buses, noted if they walked alone, if their parents were home, what time the girls returned home from school, and if there were any siblings that would get in the way. After his study of the girls, he would determine if they were too risky to abduct. One of the girls that Ivanitz had stalked had been ruled out because her older brother had started to play with her after school. Police were shocked to learn that Kara Robinson was not Ivanitz's intended victim the day she was taken. There was no notes on her. Instead, another young girl's routine was recorded in the notebook. This girl lived in the neighborhood Kara was taken from. When she was interviewed by the police, she said that instead of going home that day, she went to her friend's house instead, which was a break in her usual pattern. Investigators determined that once Ivanitz realized that his intended victim was not where he believed she would be, he drove around looking for another girl to kidnap. Kara being at her friend's house and outside watering the flowers was a pure coincidence. Among the notebooks, 
and pairs of girls' underwear. Police also found a newspaper clipping from Spotsylvania County about the missing list girls. This was puzzling to the investigators. Why had Ivanitz included this in his trunk of treasures? Could there be a connection? Authorities quickly called the Silva Lisk Task Force. They soon learned that Ivanitz had lived in Spotsylvania. During the same time, Sophia Silva and Kristen and Katie Lisk were murdered. Investigators also learned that Ivanitz lived just a few miles from the Silva and the Lisk families and had taken half days off from work on the afternoons when the girls went missing. It seemed as if the coincidences were aligning. However, authorities were cautious. They needed more proof. They didn't want to put the families through any more false speculations. When the Trans Am was searched, they found a fingerprint in the trunk of the car. Amazingly, it was discovered to belong to Kristen Lisk. After five years, the print was clear without any smudges. It undeniably belonged to Kristen. Investigators didn't stop there. They collected fibers, hair, and debris from Ivanitz's car. All of the evidence and DNA linked Ivanitz with the three girls. Even the blue fuzzy handcuffs that Kara escaped with were the same ones used to hold Sophia captive. Her DNA still clung to the cheap fabric. The evidence was overwhelming, and there was no denying that Richard Ivanitz was responsible for the kidnapping, sexual assault, and murders of Sophia Silva and Kristen and Katie Lisk. After six years, the families of Sophia Silva and the Lisk sisters finally knew who was responsible for their daughters' abductions and deaths. The revelation was welcomed, even though justice was stolen from the families. But how did this murderer, or rather possible serial killer, go undetected for so long? And investigators had to wonder if there had been other crimes that he was responsible for. Ivana's sister, the one who gave the tip to the police about where she was meeting with her brother, claimed that he confessed to more crimes in the last phone call she had with him. However, she was not willing to share this information with the police. Investigators began to delve deep into Richard Ivanitz's life to answer the many questions that they had. Ivanitz was born in the summer of 1963 in South Carolina to Joe and Tess. He was their first child, and Ivanitz's sisters claimed that their father was verbally and physically abusive towards all three children. They described their father as a sadistic man who got pleasure out of the power and pain he inflicted on his children. By the age of 20, Ivanitz had started to gather a record of petty crime. He broke into a neighbor's house to steal valuable coins and wrote a rubber check for $350 at Kmart. His father, Joe, told him that he needed to join the armed forces because he wouldn't be welcomed back at home. And in 1984, Ivanitz enrolled in the U.S. Navy. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but one thing that I found kind of startling and oddly fascinating is that in 1985, Tess Ivanitz, his mom, divorced his father for another man. This man, Perry DeVoe, was serving a life term for the 1975 rape and brutal murder of Kathleen Sanderlin. <sighs> Tess was working as a phone operator in the correctional facility where DeVoe was serving his sentence, and despite DeVoe's confession to the crime, Tess believed that he was innocent. <sighs> she claimed that his low IQ and the criminal justice system's unfair treatment and sentencing of black males was responsible for his conviction. Tess changed her name to Lorraine DeVoe once she was married. The day before Ivanitz committed suicide, DeVoe was actually once again denied parole. 
Ivanitz did well during the first few years in the Navy. He was one of the lead technicians in the search for the Challenger wreckage. In 1987, while stationed in Jacksonville, Florida, Ivanitz had another run-in with the law. He was seen following a 15-year-old girl as she walked home from school. As the girl passed his car, she saw that he was masturbating, so she told her mom. And the next day when Ivanitz returned, they wrote down his license plate number and called the police. An arrest warrant was issued, and the Navy released him to the authorities, where he explained that he had a bit of an issue with masturbating in front of young girls. It's an issue. (laughs) Yeah. He claimed to be drunk during the incident and was fined $252.50 and given probation for three years. Ivanitz was also required to have a mental health evaluation done and receive treatment from a psychosexual counselor. In 1989, Ivanitz married 16-year-old Bonnie Liu. He was 25 at the time. After his death, Bonnie Liu was interviewed about her marriage. She told investigators that their sex life was normal, although he did have a habit of blindfolding her and then raping her for hours. In 1992, Ivanitz was honorably discharged from the Navy. He received several awards when he exited the service, two being the Navy Achievement Medal for Leadership and the Navy Good Conduct Medal. In 1993, Ivanitz and Bonnie moved to Spotsylvania, Virginia, where he got a job as a salesperson at Kaiser Compressors. His female co-workers avoided him because he would often make tasteless, degrading, and sexist jokes. It is also said that Ivanitz's anger issues had to be addressed several times by his employer. In 1995, while living in Spotsylvania, Ivanitz broke into the home of an 11- and 13-year-old sister's. He locked the 11-year-old in the closet while he raped the 13-year-old girl. He used the blue fuzzy handcuffs and a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol to subdue the girl. At the time, Ivanitz was not a suspect of this crime. It was only after his death that the investigators were able to link him to this case. In August of 1996, Bonnie Lou left Ivanitz because she felt lonely and unloved. A month later, Sophia Silva went missing. Seven months later, the Lisk sisters also vanished. The next two years are largely unaccounted for. Ivanitz remained living and working in Spotsylvania. In 1999, Ivanitz and his much younger girlfriend moved to South Carolina. The two later married. After Ivanitz's suicide, his wife stated that although she had been told of her husband's crime, she still loved him and supported him. Investigators couldn't help but wonder if there were other missing girls that Ivanitz was responsible for. They looked at over... 45,000 cases that involve missing or murdered women. One theory is that Ivanitz is absolutely responsible for more rapes and deaths. They looked at Alicia Showalter Reynolds, a young woman whose body was found in Spotsylvania in 1996. However, police have never been able to link Ivanitz to her murder. She also does not fit his usual victim profile since she was in her 20s and her body was not found in the same manner as Ivanitz's other victims. Police also tried to link him to a series of rapes that occurred in the 90s in Arlington, Virginia, which is a county right outside Washington, D.C. However, there's no hard evidence that Ivanitz was the culprit of those crimes either. Some believe Ivanitz's only crimes are the ones that we know about. They suggest that the reason Ivanitz married girls who were so much younger was an attempt of him to kind of keep his twisted needs under control. They say that he committed the crimes when his wives became too old for his sexual preference. I, for one, don't believe that Sophia, Kristen, Katie, and Kara were his only victims. I believe more are out there. 
Ivanitz fits the bill of a serial killer to a T. His crimes were motivated by a sick sexual need. He followed a pattern with each victim by using the blue fuzzy handcuffs and shaving their pubic hair. He disposed the bodies in the same fashion, and he was able to effectively blend in with society. Since Ivanitz took his own life instead of accepting responsibility for his actions, and his sister refuses to give details about their last phone call, any other crimes he committed died with him. Justice wasn't served for Ivanitz's victims. This seems so incredibly unfair to me, even if the victims' families know who is responsible for their loved one's death, and hopefully they were able to find some closure. Kara Robinson said that she feels robbed by Ivanitz taking his own life. She wanted to testify against him. She wanted to look him in the eye and tell him that she wasn't as weak as he assumed she'd be. For her daring escape, the Silva Lisk Task Force gave Kara the $150,000 reward for catching Sophia, Kristen, and Katie's killer. Kara went on to become a police officer. While she was attending the police academy, her class was shown a case study about Richard Mark Ivonitz. Afterwards, she told her classmates that she was his last victim. Kara was also the only woman from her graduating class from the academy, a little detail that I thought was kind of cool. Richard Ivonitz robbed two set of parents the chance to watch their daughters grow into women. They had to live with the anguish of not knowing who took their girls for years and robbed a community of its sense of peace and safety. There is no doubt in my mind that without Kara Robinson's resilience, quick thinking, strength, and courage, Ivonitz would still be out there abducting, raping, and killing girls. The fact that she, at the age of 15, was able to escape from him is simply amazing to me. With that being said, I think a fitting way to close this episode are with some tips on what to do if you're ever abducted, although the chance of that happening is very, very rare. First, if possible, try with all your might to not be moved to a secondary location. Kara's escape is extremely rare. Scream, kick, punch, bite, do whatever you can do to fight the attacker. Most will run away from fear of getting caught. However, sometimes fighting is not always possible. If you are taken, stay calm and be observant. Notice the little details. Are you in a car? If so, what kind? Maybe what, remember what color? How long did you drive for? Do you recognize the area? If you're blindfolded, notice any smells or sounds like running water nearby. Try to figure out what your abductor wants from you. Just as Kara knew that young girls are nearly only taken for one reason, try to prepare yourself for what will come next. Attempt to find common ground with the abductor. Humanize yourself to them. Try to make them see you as an individual. Oftentimes, the attacker will try to distance themselves from the victim. Ask them questions. Introduce yourself. Tell them small details about your life. Be careful not to insult them and don't talk about sensitive subjects. Do what you can to make them see you as human and try to establish rapport with them. Keep a survival attitude. Believe you will be rescued or have a chance to escape. This will help you stay calm and remain observant. Attempt escape when you feel the timing is right or when an opportunity arises. This means studying the patterns and behaviors of your captor. 
Some say only attempt escape when you know you will be successful, but if you feel that you're running out of time, attempting escape may be your only option. But above all, stay calm and try to keep your wits about you. Thank you ladies for having me back this month. I hope you and the listeners enjoyed learning about this case. And if it touched you the way it did me, check out the Sophia Silva Scholarship Fund that her family started to help Spotsylvania High School students with the cost of college. Until next time, guys, thank you again. That wraps us up for today for this episode of Misconduct. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or comments about today's case, head over to our Facebook group or find us on Instagram or Twitter at Misconduct Podcast. We also wanted to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes who do our awesome intro and outro music. You can find them on Bandcamp. And like we mentioned in the opening, we also launched our Patreon. You can check out uh, our donate tab on our website or go to patreon.com slash misconductpodcast to check out our rewards and our cool merchandise. Thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.